Happy Sunday Spark. My name is Siddhi and I hope that all of you are having great weekends so far. As we continue in our series, When a Child Asks, I am so, so excited to dig into the next topic in this series with you all, which, like all of our other topics, is simply too big, too exciting, and too beautiful to capture well in a single sermon. And so I'm going to do my best today to give you my Cliff Note style approach to the incredible and expansive question, what is the Bible? This topic is particularly important and personal to me because it's a question that I wrestled with again and again and again as a new Christian who didn't grow up in the faith. As someone who had never been part of a formal church tradition before and didn't really have any Christian friends or mentors or circles to ground me in how to approach this book that fundamentally changed the world, Reading the Bible for the first time was like walking into a Pandora's box. On one end, it was beautiful and exhilarating and liberating. I could interpret the Bible on my own terms without anyone telling me the right or the wrong way to interpret it. And on the other hand, it was the scariest and loneliest thing in the world because I felt so unanchored. There were still all these books and articles and perspectives everywhere with completely conflicting advice on whether I was reading the Bible correctly. So in addition to just taking on this giant task of just reading through the Bible, I was constantly questioning myself and whether how I was reading the Bible was how I should be reading the Bible. And that was a real double-edged sword. So what I want to do in this lesson today, Spark, is to share with all of you five questions that I asked myself as a new Christian when I started to read the Bible for the first time. And I want to share five answers, more like thought starters, to those questions that I found in my journey that really helped me deepen and transform my view of the Bible from a confusing, ancient, disjointed, sometimes morally disturbing text into a living, breathing, radical, redemptive, and life-changing story of what God is up to in this world. Now, none of these spark are complete or correct or all-encompassing answers. For every answer I've discovered that's helped me, there are a million other answers that may resonate better for other people in other stages of their own faith journey. These are, again, just some high-level thought starters for people of all ages that I think can help spark a richer conversation about how to make sense of this beautiful, brilliant, civilization-altering collection of stories about how God moves through us and restores us and heals and reconciles our world. So with that, here we go. Question number one, who wrote the Bible? We could probably spend years preaching on the many, many diverse perspectives that exist on this question, and there are lifetimes of scholarly work uh, that have tried to figure this out. And I found myself in so many rabbit holes trying to answer this question for myself when I started to read the Bible, only to end up in a place where I had a lot of potentially interesting answers, but not a whole lot of meaning. 
What I realized in my own learning journey, Spark, is that in the process of overemphasizing the importance of identifying a handful of people who wrote the Bible, we've seriously underemphasized, one, whether that question was even important to ancient Israel, and two, how incredible it is that the Bible continues to provoke, influence, and change the world in spite of still not having universally agreed upon authors. In his book, How the Bible Became a Book, The Textualization of Ancient Israel, William Schneidewind describes how the importance of authorship was actually a pretty unknown and foreign concept in the ancient world. Many of the most famous ancient epics, like the Epic of Gilgamesh from Mesopotamia, or the Enuma Elish, which was a creation myth from Babylonia, as well as several other Egyptian and Canaanite epics, actually have no official author. And yet, that didn't seem to bother or preclude ancient cultures at the time from still making incredible meaning of these texts. And so when we ask ourselves the question, who wrote the Bible, I think it's really important to take a step back and acknowledge that the importance of trying to figure out who wrote something was really an invention of a literate world. It was a question that didn't even become truly important until after the rise of Greek civilization. But that wasn't the world where our great biblical story began. Ancient Israel was an oral culture. The Bible, the most revolutionary text in human history, emerged in an agriculture-based society before we even had books. People experienced God in real, raw, visceral ways, then shared and passed down those experiences across the generations in the form of oral stories, songs, letters, poems, proverbs, and traditions. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 7, we hear God command, keep these words that I am commanding to you today in your heart. Recite them to your children and talk about them when you were at home and when you were away. We see this language of hearing, listening, and verbal teaching echo throughout our biblical story before anything was actually ever written down. So yes, the Bible was ultimately edited and canonized into the book we have today. Ancient Jewish scribes living after the exile, which uh, to recap was the period of time when ancient Israelites were held captive in Babylon, did collect and compile these traditions into a single book. And that was at a crisis in time and identity when Israel needed to write their story down to make sense of and preserve their past, present, and future. But I think the important takeaway spark here is this. The story of Israel isn't that of any single author. It's that of many communities of real people living in real human history, wrestling with their real lived experiences with God over vastly diverse and changing economic, political, cultural, and religious times. For the people who first started telling God's story, and for the vast majority of books in the Bible. Knowing the original author's identity wasn't what mattered most. But the idea of communal authorship, a group of people telling the story together of what God meant to the fabric of who they were as a people, that did matter. And so for me, at least, celebrating these diversity of perspectives was a more valuable way to enrich my own relationship with the Bible than my quest to pinpoint specific authors. Or a simpler answer 
from when a child asks, who wrote the Bible? Real people, just like you and me, who had amazing experiences with God over time and wanted to share those important stories with future generations. And that leads me to my second big question for today's spark, which is, well, okay, if the Bible was written by humans, then how is it that it can be God-breathed or inspired? So we just covered how real communities in real human history experienced, told, wrote, edited, and compiled the stories that make up our Bible. What does it mean then for the Bible to be God-breathed, which is actually the Bible's self-description in 2 Timothy 3.16? How do we wrestle with the tension between a book that's written from the point of view of so many unique people and communities over time, but is also simultaneously divinely inspired? When I first started reading the Bible Spark, this tension felt crippling, right? How do I go about understanding what the Bible is, and what the Bible means if I can't even wrap my head around which pieces of it were human versus truly divine. In retrospect, I think going into reading the Bible with that framing, right, that need to cleanly separate out the human and the divine pieces of how the text worked was such a natural and human thing for me to want to do, but it also really limited my ability to experience the Bible's magic for what it was. It was me bringing a very modern and anachronistic lens to a story that was never really supposed to be read in that way. Here's something that Pete Enns wrote in his amazing book, Inspiration and Incarnation, that really helped me work through and wrestle with this tension. Christians confess that Jesus is both God and human at the same time. He's not half God and half human. He's not sometimes one and sometimes the other. He's not essentially one and only apparently the other. Jesus is 100% God and 100% human at the same time. This way of thinking of Christ is analogous to thinking about the Bible. In the same way that Jesus is, must be, both God and human, the Bible is also a divine and a human book. Although Jesus was God with us, he still completely assumed the cultural trappings of the world in which he lived. In fact, this is what he implied in God with us. Perhaps this is part of what the author of Hebrews had in mind then, when they said Christ was made like them, fully human in every way. Jesus was a first century Jew. The languages of the time were his languages. Their customs were his customs. He fit, he belonged, he was one of them. So too, the Bible. It belonged in the ancient worlds that produced it. It was not an abstract, otherworldly book dropped out of heaven. It was connected to, and therefore spoke to, those ancient cultures. God's word reflects the various historical moments in which scripture was written. God acted and spoke in history. Spark, that shift in thinking for me was beautiful and it was empowering. For a story to be inspired or God-breathed didn't mean that it had to have unhuman-like qualities. It didn't have to be clean or historically precise or feel completely figured out or different from the human voices that tell our biblical story. God meets people where they're at. And God's word and inspiration worked through his people. 
So just like Jesus's own humanness was fully involved and wrapped up in his own historical setting, so were the experiences of the biblical storytellers experiencing God. God's involvement in our story doesn't have to exclude the realities of human life and culture. Instead, it can work actively through it. So when we encounter those moments in the Bible where it's impossibly hard for us not to ask ourselves, well, what role did God really play in what we're reading? It might be helpful to instead ask if the Spirit of God was working through this passage, what might it be doing? How might it be rich and alive in what I'm reading and experiencing? How does that transform this story for me? And what is my place in this story? Or spark a simpler answer for when a child asks, if the Bible was written by humans, how can it be God-breathed or inspired? It's because God works through real people. And knowing that real humans, just like you and me, wrote these stories of what God is up to in the world is amazing because it shows us that God isn't that far away. God is working in us and through us to do amazing things in the world. So question number three for the day spark, does the Bible contradict itself? We've described so far that the Bible was written by many people across many cultures and moments in time. And as part of that, what we see throughout our text is what seem like a whole bunch of confusing contradictions. Some are small contradictions, like this one, that can often go unnoticed. Again, the anger of the Lord burnt against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and take a census of Israel and Judah. That's from 2 Samuel 24. And then uh, we see another phrase here, Satan rose against Israel and incited David to take a census. And that's from 1 Chronicles 21. So wait, hold on. Who was it who actually asked David to take a census? Was it God or was it Satan? And then there are seemingly blatant contradictions that you just can't miss because they're literally side by side and make us do a double take, right? Like this one in the book of Proverbs. Do not answer fools according to their folly, or you will be a fool yourself. Answer fools according to their folly, or they will be wise in their own eyes. Thank you so much for the clarity there, Proverbs. We really appreciate it. And then there are even larger questions, right? Like why are there four gospels that don't always record the same specific events and sometimes record completely different events? Why would someone choose to put four different accounts of Jesus's life in the single most important piece of history they would leave behind about him? Spark, here's where some more reframing helped me navigate my confusion and frustration yet again. Instead of thinking about these occurrences in the Bible as contradictory, it helped me to think about them as just diverse. Let's walk through those three examples again real fast to see how simmering beneath the seemingly mind-boggling inconsistencies in the Bible, there's usually always something pretty stunning and intentional going on. So that first example, again, the anger of the Lord burnt against Israel and he incited David against them. And then Satan rose against Israel and incited David to take a census. So the second Samuel version of the census account was actually written several hundred years before the first Chronicles version. 
underneath that seeming contradiction is actually an evolution of experience and thinking. In the ancient world, it was pretty common to view God as this angry, violent, and vengeful force, and the idea of a covenant with the deeply loving, caring, forgiving God that we're introduced to in the Bible was a foreign concept to many. So it's possible that what we're seeing over the course of just a couple hundred years between those two accounts isn't just an accidental contradiction, but instead a very intentional shift in thinking. The God of the Israelites wasn't a vindictive God burning with anger. He was a new kind of God, so different from what ancient Israelites once thought that God could be. That in that First Chronicles account, we see the census now attributed not to God at all, but to Satan. Isn't that beautiful? It's like these writings are alive. They're the place where Israel was making sense of and reimagining again and again and again who God was. And then our second example of those back-to-back contradictions in Proverbs. Do not answer fools according to their folly and then answer fools according to their folly. The contradiction is so intentional in its placement that we know that the writer of Proverbs is after something bigger. I think, maybe, that here, the Bible is inviting us into the conflict, pushing us to think more deeply, challenging us to actively contend with the competing pieces of advice and apply the right judgment for the right moment ourselves. I read this contradiction almost like a wake-up call to us. It's like the Bible is saying, hey, God's people, this isn't just a place for easy checkbook answers. This isn't an instructional manual for how to live your life. Put in the work, what do you think? And lastly, the example of four sometimes inconsistent gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. Rather than seeing these as contradictions, I also find it helpful to see them as intentional diversity. Each gospel writer is telling the Jesus story in a way that would resonate most most powerfully with their community of the time. These stories have been very purposefully shaped to meet the community where they're at. So, for example, the Gospel of Matthew cites the Old Testament more than any other gospel writer, likely because his audience was mostly Jewish, and that audience would have wanted to see how the Jesus story was connected to the broader Israel story. Whereas, we see that Luke's portrayal of Jesus was intended more for a Gentile audience. The Gospels drew from independent sources and traditions at times, and they're crafted with intense pastoral care for their audience's communities. So, does the Bible contradict itself? Sometimes, because these stories were written for different audiences for different times. Other times, it's because Israel's lived experience with God evolved, and with that, how they told God's story. And other times, like in Proverbs, the contradictions are hyper-intentional, jolting us out of our belief that the Bible is a rule book, but instead a provocative tool that puts the onus on us to do that deep thinking and wrestling for ourselves. So rather than undermining the Bible's integrity, I think that the diversity underscores it. Basically, there's something always more profound and beautiful going on under the surface. Or a simpler answer spark for when a child asks, does the Bible contradict itself? The Bible isn't just a book, it's a whole library. It's not just one book with one voice, with one story and one genre. 
It's a library with many voices, many stories, and many genres. And because of this, we see a lot of diversity in the Bible, including different perspectives on the same story. And that's okay. It's all meant to be there to show us the unique ways in which we experience God in our lives. And that brings me to our fourth question for the day, which is how do we make sense of all of those uncomfortable, unrelatable, or straight out weird parts of the Bible? Again, this is something that we could spend forever talking about and thinking about, and we only have time today to briefly touch on this. So what I want to emphasize, Spark, is that in those many moments of our biblical story where we feel unnerved, right, and all we want to do is close the book and never open it again, those are often signs that there is a much bigger, more redemptive pulse of God working through these stories. There is lots in our text that make us deeply uncomfortable. Stories of conquest and wiping out villages and a bunch of senseless violence, it's really hard to read. And it's hard to make sense of why God's story would include so much of this and why the biblical writers would choose to preserve these stories as part of our history. Remember, the idea of divine violence was a core part of the way that many ancient cultures thought about God, especially post-500 BCE in the Iron Age. It was part of the framing and the language and the imagery that people of the time used to talk about a God that they filtered through a very particular lens in time. And so when they told these stories of their experiences and passed them down, it's really important to keep in mind that these are, again, real humans telling stories of who they believed God to be through that lens. It doesn't mean that God was this violent, vindictive force in the world. It just means that that was the worldview of many ancient Israelites at the time. So when we run into an alarming verse in the Bible, right, something along the lines of, and then God told them to go and kill everyone in the village, it's helpful to feel what we need to feel and then pause and remind ourselves that someone somewhere wrote that who understood God and the world in that way. Rob Bell, who wrote uh, this amazing book called What is the Bible? How an ancient library of poems, letters, and stories can transform the way you think and feel about everything, does an amazing job describing that the narrative arc in the Bible is always pulsing towards something greater than the discomfort of any particular moment. He says, if you find these stories violent and repulsive and barbaric, because they are, the violence isn't that surprising. What's surprising is that among all the violence are new ideas about serving and blessing nonviolence. Here's what I mean. Do you find it primitive and barbaric to care for widows, orphans, and refugees? That's commanded in the book of Deuteronomy. Do you find it cruel and violent to leave a corner of your field unharvested so the poor can have something to eat? That's commanded in the book of Leviticus. Do you think people should be set free from slavery? That's the story of the book of Exodus. Do you think it's good to love your neighbor? That's commanded in the book of Leviticus. What you find in the Bible are stories accurately reflecting the dominant consciousness of the day, and yet right in 
and among, and sometimes even within these very same violent stories, you find radically new ideas about freedom, equality, justice, compassion, and love. You being shocked and repulsed by the violence in those stories may be the writer's intention in telling those stories. Somebody, somewhere, decided to arrange the particular stories in this particular way. There was something that they were saying about what they decided to include and what they left out. That, to me, is powerful. And this isn't sparked to diminish or say that we shouldn't feel the full range of human emotions when we experience stories in the Bible that unnerve us. Not at all. Rather, that there is a narrative arc in our Bible towards something beautiful and radical and just, towards the redeeming, healing, restoring work that God is doing in our world. You can find it in the uncomfortable, like the movement towards nonviolence and all that violence, you can find it in the unrelatable, like those pages and pages of what seem like obscure, outdated laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, which were actually massively progressive, even revolutionary steps forward for Israel at the time. You can find it in the bizarre, like the story of Jonah being swallowed by a big fish, which really isn't meant to be a story that's debated for whether Jonah could really live inside a fish's belly, but about God's light and astounding ability to love and forgive, and how that exposes the darkness of Israel's own stubbornness. The progression and growth is everywhere, even where it seems least likely. Or a simpler answer for when a child asks, how do we make sense of all those uncomfortable, unrelatable, or straight out weird parts of the Bible? God is meeting God's storytellers where they're at in their worlds, with their laws, their norms, their beliefs, and their way of life. And God pushes them forward from there. Often, God is meeting people in a world that is very, very different from our own. And so the stories that we experience may seem a little weird or even scary. But the important thing is this. It's that God is always pushing the story towards a more beautiful, fair, and just world. And that spark brings me to our last question for the day, and maybe one of the most controversial, which is, is the Bible true? This question, maybe more so than any other question, has simultaneously energized and terrorized so many people and discussions and debates for so much time, and was probably the hardest and continues to be for me to wrestle with. The framing that I found most helpful in grappling with this question is one that Pete Enns and Jared Bias lay out in their episode titled, Is the Bible True? in their podcast series, The Bible for Normal People, which by the way, is an amazing podcast for anyone who finds deconstructing the Bible interesting. So in the podcast, Pete and Jared break down truth in the Bible into three different categories. The first kind of truth is truth as fact. Is the Bible telling us something about the physical world that is historical, scientific, or verifiable? So for example, the person of Jesus is a factual truth. He was a real, living, historical figure. The challenge with this category of truth is learning to identify when the Bible is actually trying to just state a fact about physical reality 
and when it's not, when it's just trying to meet people where they're at. I don't think the biblical writers were trying to write an error-free book of facts, because if they were, then they could have easily scrubbed out all of those factually questionable or contradictory bits. They chose not to. The second kind of truth is truth as meaning. Is the Bible telling us something important about the human condition? Pete and Jared use examples here like The Lord of the Rings or The Chronicles of Narnia, which clearly aren't factual stories, but through fiction expose us to really beautiful truths about what it means to be human. Jesus' parables may not be factually true. There may not have ever been an actual prodigal son, but those parables re reveal even more truth about the human condition than even fact could. And the third kind of truth spark is truth as wisdom. Is the Bible telling us something that allows us to embody wisdom and influence how we live our lives? The entire book of Proverbs is a really great example of this. So by seeing truth itself as multidimensional, we can move away from seeing the Bible as a binary true versus untrue entity, and instead experience it for all the depth and nuance that it is. I'll wrap this question up with another awesome quote from Rob Bell. To answer the question, is the Bible inerrant or without error? Let's start with, did Mozart's symphonies win? In your estimation, has Mozart prevailed? Are his concertos true? Odd questions, right? They're odd because that's not how you think of Mozart's music. They're the wrong categories. What you do with Mozart's music is you listen to it and you experience it and maybe you study it or play it, but mostly you enjoy it. That's the problem with the word inerrant when it comes to the Bible. It's the wrong category. Where did people get the idea that without error is the highest form of truth? Is the sunset without error? Is the love between you and the person you're in love with without error? You don't think about those experiences in those terms because they would rob those experiences of their depth and joy. To argue for inerrancy is arguing for a different kind of library of books, a library we don't have. That spark is powerful. When we judge the Bible's truthfulness based on what it's trying to do, rather than what we want it to do, the Bible becomes this power-packed agent of wisdom that continues to speak to us today in brilliant ways. Or that simpler answer for when a child asks, is the Bible true? Yes, it is. Just like family is true, and friendship is true, and love is true, and courage is true, and all the beauty that we see in the world is true. God's story is true. And it's true in ways that are so much more powerful than just facts. Spark, we covered a lot today and we haven't even scratched the surface of so many other incredible questions about the Bible that lie between Genesis and Revelation. N.T. Wright describes the Bible as a five-act play of God's creation, redemption, and rescue of the world. And he says that the fifth act, the rescue and renewal of the world, is one we continue to be active actors in to this day. The script of God's story 
is still being written. The play is unfinished, and we are all a part of writing it. Now, today, every day, we continue the story. We move it forward. We, like Israel, change, we move, we transform. This story is our story. So, to summarize, when a child asks, what is the Bible? You might say, the Bible is a beautiful, courageous, life-changing, true story that pushes humanity forward to be more like God and Jesus. It's a story told by real people and communities who experienced God's love and power and redemption in real life, and then passed those stories throughout the generations, first in the form of oral stories, poems, and traditions, and eventually compiled those stories into the book that we have today. And as real people told those stories, God was working through them in some absolutely incredible ways. Sometimes the Bible can feel confusing or mysterious or even a little scary, and it's okay to feel all of those things because those are the stories of how our ancestors might have experienced things a long, long time ago in a world very different from our own. But in those confusing moments, Spark, remember this. God is up to something amazing in the world that is all about love, about justice, about peace, about beauty. And today, you, yes you, are a part of continuing God's incredible story. Spark, it's that time of our service where we share in communion and continue to remember the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. For in the night in which he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus took the bread, blessed and broke it, giving it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper, he took the cup, gave thanks, and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. All are welcome at this table.